This is Living As You. Here's your host, PQ. What's up, team? It's your guy, PQ, coming at you from Living As You. Today, I'd like to share with you a conversation with a humanitarian and servant leader, Jim Peck, a native of San Diego, California, and a general vascular and trauma surgeon for 39 years. Dr. Jim Peck has treated thousands of patients in the Pacific Northwest and all over the world. Known for his international work in countries such as Bangladesh, Guatemala, Sudan, the 72-year-old continues to give up himself with no signs of stopping. I got in touch with Jim about two years ago for a mutual learned quite a bit from the stories of overcoming adversity and witnessing the purest of human connection from his time abroad. Jim's stories from his time abroad are a testament to the power of human relationships and a call to each of us to forgive. How have you been, you and your family, during this time? Been good. You know, our, our daughter is in New York. She's OBGYN in New York. So 20% of her patients, pregnant patients, had the uh, virus. And her hospital at one point had 400, uh, more than 400 patients on respirators, <laughs> which was in uh, Manhattan, Mount Sinai West. And it wasn't as bad as the Bronx or Brooklyn, but it was pretty impressive. And uh, she ended up having a positive antibody. So she obviously was exposed. But um, of course, she didn't see her family for three months. She had to send them away so that they wouldn't get, uh, you know, wouldn't be infected. So uh, we have been sheltered in and haven't been, haven't been bad at all. We've been good. Awesome. What has that been like for you? Like knowing that she is kind of in the heart of uh, the uncertainty and everything going on. So what we did is just what you uh, are doing now. We do Zoom. So we'd have a family Zoom with my daughter who was uh, in Alaska and she's an ER doc. And then we had another daughter, Colleen, who is at OHSU here. And uh, all of the family, all the kids and grandchildren and everything would have a, a weekly family Zoom just to kind of make Katie feel not so alone. I mean, she would walk to work. She wouldn't use the uh, subway. And she didn't really, she didn't have, uh, she wouldn't go to the store. So she had people leaving, you know, food at her door when she came back. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough time for her. But I think we tried to do it that way. And, you know, she, uh, she actually it was interesting, Patrick. After a week, she said, you know, I found out, Dad, that I'm pretty good in crisis. So that was something that you learn when you, you know, are put in a tough situation. You find For out sure. how good you can be. And, and how did that make you feel hearing yeah. that from her? Because obviously you've had so many experiences within crisis yourself. Yeah, I mean, you never really know how you're going to react until it actually happens. You never know. You think you know, but you don't. You don't know 
grinding poverty until you actually see grinding poverty. I mean, the poverty that we have in the United States is nothing like the poverty that they have in most of the world. And so it's just, you never know how you're gonna handle it. And that's why 50% of people that do Doctors Without Borders never do more than one mission because it's just so overwhelming and so difficult that you kind of say, you know what, that's not what I want. And uh, I'll do one mission, but I won't do more than one mission. So yeah, it's, it's uh, you never really know how you're gonna react. And there are a lot of people like she had partners that were exposed. I think at one point in labor and delivery, eight of the nurses came down sick and four of the doctors and the head nurse who was on, who was the same age as my daughter Katie who was 48 he died and he did have uh, uh asthma but he was you know Katie said he was amazing he was he came to New York at the same time my daughter did as a ballet dancer and uh, both of them then went into healthcare he went into nursing she went into uh, being a physician and she always loved the way he moved. He moved so elegantly when he was around the hospital and he was so efficient in the way that he moved. He didn't make any extra movement. But the other nurses said that he cared too much and he worked too hard, mm -hmm. that he was tired and that, you know, he just, you know, when you're in that situation where you've just got literally hundreds of patients coming all with the virus it's a really tough situation so one of the other things that was tough is that initially the hospital wouldn't let the uh, the uh, husband be with the the patient because that ex made the exposure twice as much and uh and in fact one of her partners got infected from the husband not from the patient the patient didn't have the virus but the husband did and gave it to uh, one of her partners, which meant that she couldn't work for uh, two weeks and that just cut back the number of OBGYN that they had to work. So it was a, a really tough situation at first. And a lot of it wow. was that they just initially in, in February and March, they didn't have enough of the PPEs to protect everybody. And they were reusing their mask and they were soaking them in alcohol, thinking that that would, you know, uh, cut the, uh, the, would kill the virus so that they could wear it the next day. And just a lot of different things that were tough. Initial, and then eventually they did get all their PPEs, but it took a while. Jim, as a, as a doctor of, of so many experiences of so many years, as you touched on during this time, like what is, what has this made you think back to your time, whether it was in Sudan with Tom, or whether it was just here at OHSU, how has this crisis with the coronavirus made you look back on your uh, own career in, in a new light? Well, you know, Doctors Without Borders has never had a uh, mission in the United States. It's always had missions everywhere else in the world. It felt that, uh, the United States with FEMA and with all of the uh, governmental things would be able to handle it. But it turned out that Doctors Without Borders had two missions 
in the United States, well, actually three in the United States uh, when the COVID-19 began. One of them was in Brooklyn at uh, Brownville uh, Clinic, uh, and they just couldn't handle it. There just wasn't enough physicians. And obviously, many of the essential workers were in Brooklyn. And so they were, they asked us uh, to volunteer for them. And many of us who had been on many missions before uh, volunteered. It turned out to my great disappointment that they thought I was uh, elderly at uh, 73 years old and they didn't <laughs> accept me as a volunteer. So they accepted others as, as the volunteer there. But the others was, um, it, because everything was closed, the uh, homeless in, in Manhattan and, and New York in general uh, did not have any place to get a shower. So they created a shower van to go around to all the homeless so that they could get showers uh, because everything was closed. All of the uh, shelters that the homeless had used in the past to at least get a, a, a hot shower were gone. So that was the second mission that you could do that. And then the third mission was uh, with the Indian Health Service. So in that mission, they didn't actually ask for doctors. They asked for nurse practitioners because the Indian Health Service was also overwhelmed uh, with uh, the virus and also, so that, yeah. so using your skills that you had uh, learned uh, in uh, Sudan and in uh, Bangladesh. So the past year I was in Bangladesh for December, January and February of 2019. And then in Sudan, I was there October, November and December. And I came back in, um, in, in December and uh, I went to Guatemala in, uh, in February and March. And I got out of Guatemala four days before the Guatemala government closed its borders. They wouldn't allow people to leave. But fortunately, um, you know, we knew that and we knew we had to leave. But as you might imagine, that left Guatemala without any healthcare in the mountains. I was in the mountains where the uh, Maya Indians were. It was an area where the rebels used to be. It was an area where the rebels used to be, uh, but the government at this point is stable, but they have no healthcare up there. Many of the patients that I operated on, and we did 200 operations, many of them had gone to the government health service but they were told because they didn't have any money that they were not eligible for care and so they needed gallbladder surgery they needed um, what they call common duct surgery they needed a lot of hernias repaired uh, so this was all elective surgery it wasn't the normal thing that i do with doctors without borders which is trauma which is a lot of gunshot wounds and machete wounds and uh, stab wounds and stuff like that. But they didn't need that. They needed regular health care. And uh, of course, once we left, we aren't allowed to go back. I mean, I, I actually volunteered to go back there, but they uh, recently told me that they weren't allowed in the, that Americans are not allowed in the country. And, and 
actually none of us are allowed in the country because of our exposure here in the United States. So as you know, Americans cannot go to Europe, any of the EU countries. We can't go to Canada, we can't go to Mexico. So we're pretty stuck here in the United States for now. Jim, paint me a picture of Guatemala or Bangladesh when you were there. So Guatemala, it was very interesting. The, the place that we were working in was a military hospital. Uh, and we actually created, it was not a, it was a military base. We created the hospital in uh, classrooms that were there. And um, initially, when they had first gone there uh, three or four years ago, the Maya Indians wouldn't go because they were afraid that the military, which had persecuted them before, would persecute them again, that this was a, a sham. But after a couple of years, and this was the fourth year, so when I went there, we had, were overwhelmed with patients to the point where we could not do all of them in the time that we were there because we had to leave. But we would see, you know, in the clinics, we were seeing like 200 patients a day in the clinic that needed surgery. And it was overwhelming. And of course, the, unlike the United States, people are willing to wait. So these just long lines of patients waiting to be seen. And some of them spoke um, Spanish, but many of the Mayan Indians spoke Quiche, which was the native language in the particular area where we were. So we had to have three to translate. In other words, somebody to translate from Quiche to Spanish, then from Spanish to English to me, and then go backwards. So you can imagine how, how something is lost in the translation. <laughs> It just doesn't come out the way it was actually said, because there's a big difference, even from the simple word of, let's say, bonita versus hermosa. Those two words are very different in Spanish, but they're not the same word. In, and, and if you just say beautiful, that's, a, that's not what they said. They, there was a difference. And so you, you know that the translation is different. And uh, so you have to accept that. And yet here in a country where you have no technology, there's no ultrasound, there's no, well, we did have ultrasound. We had one of the nurses was from Germany and she was doing some ultrasound so we could do that. But you don't have any CAT scanner or MRI or anything. Everything depends on your history and physical. And you have to be really, really good at history and physical in order to be sure that that patient actually needs an operation. What's going through your head when you look at the lines of patients, the hundreds of individuals in the hospital where you're serving? So that what is the most gratifying thing about these patients is that they are so grateful. They are incredibly grateful. They and maybe because if you weren't there, no one would be there. But they are so grateful. Uh, I'll give you an example. A patient that had was an extremely bright man. And I did a very complex 
biliary or, or uh, bile duct surgery on him. And afterwards, he was one of our first cases. Afterwards, every morning when I would come in, he would have a drawn picture of what he thought I had done. And every morning I would correct it and make it correct it to the, what it was done. And I finally said to him, are you a doctor or why? why? He says, no, I'm an architect, but I just read a lot. I read a lot and I wanna know what you did. He gave me one day, his daughter who would sit with him gave me hundreds of oranges and coffee and, and uh, bakery goods because she said, the nurses, they're up all night with my father. I want them to have coffee and something to eat during the middle of the night. And that's just one example of, of the kind of gifts and the kind of uh, gratefulness that you see when you take care of patients who really, really uh, need it. These people were super small. I mean, none of them came up to my shoulders and yet they were, and they were very thin as you might imagine because they don't get enough to eat, but they were amazingly grateful, always smiling. When you came on rounds, they would always be somebody to, you know, need, needed you. But obviously the need is great. And the, the hardest thing for us is when you have to leave and you know there's more that will need to be done and you're not coming back for now we don't know how long, but at that time it was for, we thought it was gonna be for a year, but it's gonna be longer than that. And there are gonna people that are gonna die because we're not there. So that's the thing that you see. And the people are willing to wait a long, long period of time to get in and they, it, it, it's interesting, they'll sacrifice themselves for another person who is more sick than they are. They say, do him first, do them first. And especially the children, they want the children done first. They, they have the same, they have a problem also, but they want their child done first. So it's, it's a remarkably uh, humbling experience to realize how, how um, lucky we are and how uh, we uh, expect all this great healthcare and they don't expect it. And, and we're different. We're just different. We, um, it's, it's a remarkably wonderful experience. Take me through a particular moment when you were either in Guatemala, Bangladesh, or Sudan, when you saw that incredible selflessness of perhaps a mom saying, hey, here, please treat my, my son before me, or hey, we have a neighbor that really needs help right now. Take me through a particular moment that comes to mind. Well, you know, the one that I always remember, and it's a hard story to tell, is in Bangladesh. So in um, the genocide in Burma, which is called Myanmar now, uh, began again, in December, uh, and I uh, arrived there uh, just a week after the genocide had began. So a million refugees crossed the river that, that separates the two countries 
and came to uh, Cox Bazaar in uh, Bangladesh. And many of these uh, young women who had had children were uh, raped uh, and had watched their children be held over fires and burned to death by the, uh, the genocide that was going on. Every single day, we would see a young woman who was catatonic, couldn't even speak because they were so uh, traumatic, traumatized, had post-traumatic stress by what they had seen. They had seen their husbands hacked to death. And uh, these, it just was remarkable. But these women would not want to come to the hospital because they were afraid of what they would, the story that they had. And they were afraid that they might be pregnant uh, with, because of the rapes. And they would be brought by their mothers or by their auntie or by a friend. They would be brought to the hospital by their friend in order to get care because they felt so um, concerned about this young woman. I, I never forget, one of them was so catatonic that when you would try to talk to her or examine her, and of course I couldn't examine her because I was a male. This is a totally Muslim population. So you, they have to have a female examine them, but they would strike out. They would hit you. Uh, they would hit the nurse practitioner who would see them in order to um, uh, try to examine them because they were so freaked out by what they had seen. Yet their, their neighbors, and frequently it wasn't people that they knew before, but because they were all huddled together, a million people in what used to have been a bamboo forest coming to uh, Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh, and they would bring these patients to us and say, they need your help. And uh, it was remarkable. We actually, MSF actually had a psychiatric hospital that was one of the biggest psychiatric hospitals. It was a tent, obviously, a big tent uh, that we had up on the hill from where we were, we were taking care of most of the trauma. We saw a lot of uh, machete wounds, a lot of burns, a lot of explosions and gunshot wounds. Take me through the mental dialogue that you have when you have patients like these women come to the hospital who have undergone just some of the greatest suffering, physical and mental suffering that anyone could go through. Uh, on this earth, what's going through your head when you when you see them enter where you are? You know, a lot of I, I think one of the hardest things is is not to get angry. I think you want to get really angry and you want to strike out, which is what many of the thing that I worried about the most by far in Bangladesh was the teenagers. The teenagers, you know, 16, 17, 15 years old, wanted to go back and strike out, to go back to their country. And, and, and this is a Buddhist majority. Can you imagine? It was Buddhists persecuting Muslims. That's what it was. And they wanted to strike out. And that's the thing that was the hardest for, because I knew, you could just tell 
I mean, I'd seen it before in other countries, like in Liberia, the, the rebels that were, you know, child soldiers, they had this look in their eye and their demeanor was so angry. They were so angry and you just knew that no good was going to come from it. And I can remember when I was in Sri Lanka that I remember one time one of my general practitioners was a Tamil. Well, the Tamils are the rebels. And this, we were taking care of a uh, general in the uh, Sri Lankan army who is Sinhala, which is a different class altogether. And he punched out my general practitioner. And my response was, come on, man, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? He's trying to help you. He's not, he's not a rebel. He's trying to help you. He's trying to, you know, be a triage towards me and I have to go and talk to him. So I think that's my first thing is to pull back on your anger. You have to, you want to, you know, you want to do something to that person who has been unreasonable uh, and who's, who you know, may be a murderer, for sure may be a murderer, but you can't do that. Your job is to take care of everybody, to be absolutely neutral, which is really critical because that's part of your safety is that you'll take care of both sides. Is that so they know that, you know, because we don't have any guns or any protection like that. We just are there. And, you know, when you're in the third world, everybody doesn't think they're in a corrupt society. They don't believe that you're there for the good of society. Why are you here? What are you doing? Well, I'm here because I want to help. What? Are you just, you're crazy to be altruistic. That can't be it. There must be something that you're doing. Why are you doing this? And especially, especially for Americans, because they always think, that it's something to do with their natural resources, their oil or their gold or their copper or something, that that's why I'm there. I'm not doing it for altruistic reasons. And that's a big problem for us because one of the issues that comes up is that the American military wants to win the hearts and minds of the people. And so they actually do help the people, but they expect information. They want to know information about where the rebels are or where whatever they are in Afghanistan, where the Taliban is. They want information. So there's some reason why they're doing it, why they're being so nice. But there's no reason for us to be nice. We're there, and they don't believe that. That's hard for them to believe because corruption is rampant throughout most of these countries that I'm in. So I, I guess that would be my response. I try to be as calm as I can. I try to just think about the patient. That's my whole focus is on that patient to do the best job that I can for that patient and then move to the next patient. And the thing is, you don't have time to think about that last patient. You need to move on to the next one because there's so many that need to be taken care of and you can't be preservating about somebody that you just did. You just have to be able to move on and do the best you can. And obviously, as you know, Patrick, we lose patients. There are young patients that I've lost. I'll never forget 
when I, my very first mission was during Charles Taylor's Civil War in Liberia, and I lost a 16-year-old on the operating table. He had lost way too much blood, and I had no blood to give him. There was no blood blank. There was no blood to give him. And although I got the injury controlled, he didn't survive. And I remember going out and saying to the father, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't save him. And there was this pregnant pause. And then his father said, you know, God is no man is no God. Man is no God. And that's right. I'm not a God. And I couldn't save him. So he understood. And that's one thing about working in these countries where they're used to death. We're not used to death in the United States. Everybody expects to live forever. But there, they see death on a regular basis. Maybe 50% of children that are born there die, either of infection, malnutrition, diarrhea, or pneumonia. That's what they die of. And they die frequently. So in any family, you'll say, how many times have you been pregnant? And they'll say nine times. How many living children do you have? I have four. And that's very, very common to hear that that story. So they, they, not that they're used to it, but they know it. They know that death can occur. And they're very good at taking care of it. They know how to take care of patients. Jim, can you describe a particular conversation in which the, the topic of kind of death came up or that particular wisdom? And I think really mature attitude in terms of looking at our time on this earth uh, came up with a particular patient or individual in Bangladesh or Sudan or Guatemala? So in Bangladesh, uh, we arrived at the clinic at around, we could not stay in the camp. The government of Bangladesh would not allow us to stay in the camp. So we hovered on the border of the camp and then we were not allowed to take a a vehicle into the camp. We had to walk to where our clinic was. And of course the clinic would be in the middle of the camp so that the patients could all come. So it was a about an hour walk into the camp in order to get to it. And one morning I got there and there was this family waiting for me. And they said, we need to have you come to the house to take a look at our, our son. And I said, just bring the son here, bring her to the emergency. No, 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 no. You need to come to the house. And I thought, what the heck? So I turned to the interpreter, I said, and the interpreter was also um, of the same uh, tribe as these people. So he, he understood. And I said, so why do they want me to go that? He said, just go to the house. I'll go with you. So I went to the house. And here was this 14-year-old boy who had been bitten by a snake. And on his little toe were two tiny dots, probably as big as a staple that had been put into his toe. They were just tiny little dots. And the, the boy was dead. The boy was rigor mortis, had been dead for hours. And I said to the interpreter, why did they want me to come? And they said, well, these snakes, when they bite you, they paralyze you. But sometimes you wake up that the 
the poison goes away, it goes off, and then the patient wakes up. And they wanted to be sure that the patient was actually dead before they buried the patient. They weren't going to bury the patient before they were sure that their son was actually dead. Well, obviously, I could hear no heartbeat, and I could see that the patient already had uh, multiple signs of death. And so, I mean, I could assure them that the patient had died, and that all that, that's all they wanted to know. They just wanted to know, is the patient dead? And now we can bury him uh, with the appropriate things. And the family, it was, oh God, you know, probably 20 people were waiting for me when I got to that house, waiting for me to go in to see that, that young boy. They were all waiting for him to wake up like Lazarus. They were waiting for Lazarus to wake up. And you know, in the old days, they used to bury people, but they would have a little string that went in to the grave so that if the person did wake up, he could ring the bell that was above the thing and you knew that he was still alive. So it's a similar situation. Jim, in that moment, what's going through your head when you see those 20 family members, when you're standing over this boy and you know he's not coming back to life um, and you know, you, I mean, you clearly see his heart's not beating. Take me, take me through what emotions you're feeling. So, you know, you always feel really bad. And I remember I felt really um, sad that we weren't in the camp and that they hadn't got that boy right to us right away when he'd been bitten. He was bitten on a Friday night and we didn't come back to the camp until Monday. We had taken, we had not been allowed into the camp by the government on Saturday and Sunday because there was some concern about some of the people escaping from the camp and going into the community. So we weren't allowed. So I felt awful that we hadn't been able to, to get that patient in and, and treat them. And I felt so bad. And it's always hard to tell a family that the patient has died. I mean, it's one of the hardest things that any physician can do, and you have to do it with a great deal of empathy. But it's interesting because in this case, like in many cases, like I had a case just recently in Sudan, they feel bad that you feel bad. And they spend a lot of time hugging you and telling you, doctor, you've done everything you could. That's okay, don't feel terrible about it. And they, and, and obviously they wail and they cry and they scream and all of those things that you've never heard anywhere else in your life. You know, you never, I remember in Ethiopia, we couldn't go, the, the, the soldiers wouldn't let us go in the hospital at night. And so we could hear the screaming in the hospital at night and we knew that some child had died. We could hear the wailing that is when, when they die in these countries, they wail. They, they aren't, um, they don't let it stay within themselves. They get rid of it. And they probably is more healthy or healthier uh, than, uh, than the way we handle death. Many of us, uh, and I've, I've learned this from my experience of losing a son. Um, many of those parents that lose a son, they try to hold it in 
they can't cry. They, they try to hold it in, but it's bad for you. It just makes it far worse. You need to, to grieve. And uh, it, it's hard, but you need to grieve. Can't even imagine what, what you've gone through in those particular circumstances. How do you, how do you even cope with those instances uh, in which loss um, occurs and hits your heart and these individuals' hearts in a way that no one could ever describe? I think the hardest thing for me is at night because once you get home and you're in your bed, then in your head, all of these patients are going through your mind. All of the, all of the events that have happened during the day. And I've found that the best way to uh, manage that is to sit down uh, when I get home and write oh, a three paragraph email to my family describing the day, to let it all out, to let it just, here's what we did today. Here's what was good and here's what didn't go so well. And here's what I wish we had done. But I think instead of uh, just preservating about it, I think the good thing is to sit down and write about it. And so I send it to my, my three daughters who are in medical field and my wife and some of my trusted friends who are medical friends uh, and I send it to them. And uh, you know, I, I think that helps me. I found that that is one of the best ways to do it. I do think that in order to do this work, you have to uh, forgive yourself uh, and you have to be somebody that can um, work um, to continue to work uh, despite uh, setbacks, uh, despite things that don't uh, go your way. You need to realize that there are more patients that need your help right now. And I, you know, there's very few times that things go badly, but there are times and there are deaths. And I think one of the examples I'd like to give you is that in Sri Lanka, unlike the Americans who never, no soldier is ever left behind during a battle. So if there is a battle in the end of the battle, Americans will always go get everybody that's lying on the battlefield. Even the persons that are dead, they bring them back, even though there is some risk to doing that. But in these countries, they don't do that. They, they don't do that until the morning after the battle. So every morning at about six o'clock, we would get all of these uh, people that would come in. And of course, if you wait hours before you bring in the trauma patients, Many of them have died because they have injuries that are not going to need hours. There's a golden hour in which you can take care of trauma. So many of the patients that we get are, are still alive and still able to be fixed, but you can only do, we would get 20 patients at a time. I could run, I was only the only surgeon. So I would run three operating rooms at the same time but I would have a general practitioner opening and closing the wounds, the abdominal wounds or the chest wounds, 
And I would go from room to room uh, doing them, but I had to triage the patients before they went. That is something that we don't do in the United States. We do everybody. Everybody that comes in gets done. But here we used to put a band on their arm that was a black band. And that meant they were dead. They weren't gonna survive. That's because I needed to do these five other patients first before I could do that guy. And that guy wouldn't survive. And I couldn't, he would take as long as it would take to do the three other patients. So I put on a, 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 a black band. And his friend who was a soldier who would, you know, say, but he's doc, he's still breathing. You can still save him. And, and the nurse, I had a nurse named Espy, who was from, uh, who was from Spain. And she was very strong. She was an Olympian. She had been in the Olympic games for Spain in basketball. She could do more one-arm push-ups than I can do two-arm push-ups. And she would get between them and between the soldiers and myself and say, listen, the doctor needs to go take care of these other patients first. You need to back off, you know? And she, would, she had a six pack on her tummy that was uh, very obvious that she was not taking any crap. <laughs> and so I, she would let me go. But that is the problem. I mean, you, you just, you can't think about the ones that you've lost. Those patients are gonna die. And when you come back, they've passed away. And you, you just have to keep working as hard as you can uh, and doing all you can at the same time. And it's, it's a mindset. I, 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 the people that have the hardest time in, in these countries are pediatricians. Because in the United States, they don't lose patients. Kids don't die. They have tremendous resilience. And they're, it just doesn't happen. And pediatricians are little mothers. They, they mother their children. They take care of them. They're extremely sensitive. So they have the hardest time when you're losing three or four babies every day, every single day. And that is just a killer for them. It is just, I, I've seen it many, many times that the pediatricians have the hardest time managing it. Surgeons are kind of assholes anyway, so we do better, <laughs> better, because we're just tough guys to begin with. But boy, pediatricians have, are, are tough. It's just really hard on them and I would say when they say that there's, you know, that not everybody goes back after one mission, I would bet you that the highest percentage is among the pediatricians. Uh, it is tough. I wanted to, to dive into something real quick. You mentioned how hard it can be for you, other physicians, and especially the patients, when you have to evaluate the extent of a patient's wounds the extent of honestly their suffering and make that decision, make that mental decision to say, I'm going to put my time and effort into this one patient versus these three over here. Take me through that mental experience, that mental journey that you go on in that split second when you have to make that decision. There's a lot of people right now in hospitals, especially around the world, are having to make that with the coronavirus. Yeah, it's a very, 
very tough thing. Uh, some of it is uh, experience. Uh, it's your instinct. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the advantages of being old. I've seen an awful lot. Uh, I've experienced an awful lot. And I have worked with other physicians in the field that are younger, and that is harder. It is harder. It's just something about the way that patient looks, the way you just have a gestalt, that that one needs to be done first. And that's not an easy thing to explain why I know that, but it's just, it's the hair on the back of your head raises up and you know that that's one of the important things is that you have to trust your uh, physical examination, that you know what the heck you're doing in that physical exam, which is harder today because the younger physicians that depend so much on technology. While, of course, I was trained in the area where we had no technology. So we uh, are much more uh, attuned, attuned to that. Um, but you do make mistakes. Uh, as surgeons, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the caveats of surgery is uh, a lot of good judgment is based on bad judgment, based on experience with bad judgment. And surgeons are frequently wrong, but never in doubt. So when you make a decision that this is what I'm gonna do, you do it. You don't hesitate. You don't preservate or think about, well, maybe I should do that. Well, maybe that, no, you can't do that. You gotta move on, get to it so that you can get back and do the next one. So you can't, you can't be that way. You have to be, um, you have to make a decision. And that's one of the hardest things to teach. And one of the things that I try to teach my residents, make a decision. Does it, your, your decision is really, does this patient need an operation or not? It's that easy. You just need to make a decision. And it's that hard as well. It's not an easy decision sometimes. And which is the first one and which is the last one, you don't know. But you just do the right thing. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, you, you're wrong. You get there and it's not that big a deal and you can fix it pretty quickly. And then sometimes you get in there and you're so glad you're there. It's right now, you would have never been able to save them if you hadn't done them that very second. But I have to say that it's experience, it's the big value. What are we afraid of, Jim, when we get in that moment of either making one decision or another, whether it's in the operating room, whether it's in a workplace setting, whether it's in a home? What are we afraid of? You know, the hardest thing, uh, not everybody can do this job uh, because they have fear. And it's okay to have fear. Not everybody needs to do this job. It's, but you can't have fear if you're going to do this job. You, it's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to become one of the doctors without borders, they wanna prove that you have that experience, that you can, you're not gonna be afraid to do it. And it is hard in the beginning. I can remember my daughter, when she was an intern, 
she was an OBGYN intern. And the first time that she delivered a baby with the cord wrapped around the baby's neck so that the, the baby's face was blue. And the ba when she went to bring the baby out, the baby's head was blue. And my daughter backed up and her resident yelled at her and pushed her forward and said, Katie, you need to do something, which meant she needed to cut the cord and get it off that baby to make it better. And you can't back up. You need to go forward. And I remember my daughter called me that night and said, Dad, that was really hard to have somebody yell at me to do something. Yet she needed to do that. And it is very hard when you know you need to do something, yet you're afraid to do it because you it see it seems so tragic. But you know, you worry about not only the patients, but the patient's family, their wives, their children, um, because you know what it's like to lose family members. You know what it's like to lose fam uh, children. And it's, it's, not, it's terribly difficult. And you know what they're gonna go through. And it is, you have that empathy, but that doesn't mean you can't be decisive. You have to be decisive because that's your job. That's your job. And if you're not willing to do that job, if you're gonna be fearful all the time, then you shouldn't be doing the job. And actually I have seen physicians that have been sent home because they couldn't make a decision and you need to be able to make physicians. Jim, how have you been able to, over the course of your career and so many experiences in these, these countries, been able to act when the moment calls for action? You know, one of the things I always like to say, Patrick, is that I had really good mentors. My dad um, was a general practitioner in San Diego, but he was, he was one of only 10 GPs in San Diego, which is hard to believe because now there are literally hundreds of doctors in San Diego. But at that time, there were only 10. And I, he took care of... Uh, uh, an orphanage in San Diego that was at the San Diego Mission. Um, and at that time, during World War II and Korea, there were hundreds of orphans because all of the Navy, all of the Marines came to San Diego for their training and there was no significant birth control or uh, need for that at the time. And so that there were a lot of orphans. And my father did that job um, of taking care of the, uh, all of the orphans at the uh, San Diego Mission pro bono. He did it for free. And I can, can't tell you the number of nights that I saw him getting up in the middle of the night to go in to uh, the mission to see those patients. Uh, and he, so I had that mentor that would did not hesitate to do stuff like that that's that's what he did and i remembered even as a child that i was embarrassed because once a year they would have a program for him it was at christmas time and all of the kids would put on a show for him and my mother and my brothers and sisters 
And I always felt so embarrassed that they were so grateful to my father, but it was obviously something that I learned from him. Also, I had an aunt who was on my mother's side of the family who worked for Mother Teresa. And she would say to me, even when I was a resident working at Los Angeles County Hospital, which is, takes care of indigent patients, she would say to me, when are you gonna start giving back, Jim? And I said, Mavis, I'm working with indigent patients. I've got four kids I need to educate. I'm not going to the third world in any time soon. And she would say, well, here's some information about Doctors Without Borders. And she was always bugging me about it. But, you know, she, she also was a really good example of why you need to give back when you can. You've given back in so many ways to all of us and so many individuals all over this world. How can we support you? How can we support other doctors within the program, Doctors Without Borders? So I'm, I'm first going to talk about two of the really terrific uh, programs that are worldwide that do a lot. One is Doctors Without Borders, which is uh, based out of France. So MSF, Medicine Sans Frontieres, in the United States is only in New York. But we're underneath the uh, wing of uh, France. They take no money from governments, from pharmaceuticals, from anything that would influence them. In other words, they don't want anybody telling them who they can treat or what medications they can treat with. They don't want anybody telling, so anybody that has any kind of affiliation with any kind of business uh, that would tell them that. So 99% of what is given is by individual donations. Admittedly, there's people like Angela Jolene, uh, the, you know, the people from Bono, uh, people like uh, the Bushes, the Clintons, they give millions of dollars to those organizations uh, because they know that they do good work and that they have a very high rating on what's called Navigator. Navigator is a thing you can look at online to see how good a charity organization is. And it's unbelievable because only 2% of what is given is for administration. Everything else goes to the project. The other one that is terrific is Partners in Health, which is a wonderful organization out of Harvard or Brigham. And it works primarily in Haiti and in those areas. And it does terrific work as well. So those are two really good organizations. There is Medical Teams International, and you can actually volunteer and work in their storehouse and help get all the equipment that we need together to be used in their projects. So if you don't want to give money, but you want to give time, you can work in their storehouse. That's absolutely fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for your time your stories, your wisdom, everything. It's just an incredible blessing to, to be talking with you today and to just allow you to can touch more lives through this platform. So just really sincere thanks to you. You're welcome.
Good luck to you, Patrick.